Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. A quick warning before we get into this interview. The conversation you're about to hear is about medical history. So we will be talking about blood and guts and injuries and other potentially squeamish stuff. So if you're sensitive to that, we thought we'd let you know. Anyway, there's something fascinating and morbid about medical history. Something that is unique to that genre. Like if you read up on military history, Odds are you'll hear a lot about generals maneuvering soldiers around, surprising each other, burning down cities. The technology has changed, but nothing else has, really. We've always known how to fight war. But if you look into the history of medicine, one thing will become very clear very quickly. For a very, very, very long time, we had no idea how our own bodies work. Sawbones which is a podcast produced here at Maximum Fun, is a show about all the gruesome, gross, and sometimes very funny stuff that we did to our bodies in the name of health and medicine. It's hosted by Dr. Sidney McElroy, a physician and medical history buff, and her husband, Justin McElroy, who hosts the shows My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and The Adventure Zone. Since the COVID-19 pandemic has dominated the headlines, Sawbones has also become a great source for reliable context and information about vaccines, epidemiology, and why you shouldn't take your dog's worm medicine to fight off the coronavirus. When Sydney, Justin, and I talked in 2018, they just released a book based on the show. It's called The Sawbones Book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine. It is beautifully illustrated by Taylor Smurl. And just a couple months ago, the book got a paperback edition, a definitive paperback edition with new material. You can buy it now, too. Anyway, let's get into it. Justin and Sydney McElroy of Sawbones. Dr. Sidney McElroy, Justin McElroy, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you guys. What an honor it is to be on your program, finally, Jesse, as an auteur, <laughs> uh, which is what us authors call authors. <laughs> really? Is that, what, is that what we say? Yes, that is what us authors, mm. or auteurs, if we prefer, <laughs> say. I, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> so you two were podcasting before you started Sawbones. Um, you had two television podcasts, which is a much more typical thing to podcast about. How did you end up podcasting about the very specific topic of medical history? Sydney always gets mad at me because in interviews, I always bring up these two great shows, these great concept shows. They weren't great. <laughs> the first was called go ahead. I, I, go ahead. Losing I the Sheen, which was a... Darn, that's like the punchline, but the setup is it's a show about two and a half men hosted by two people that did not watch it until Ashton Kutcher joined the show and replaced Charlie Sheen. And it was a episode by episode recap that we managed to stick with for all of 10 episodes, I think, nine or 10 episodes on Losing the Sheen before we were like, hey, this is, there's no amount of like- Soul crushing. Yeah, it's soul crushing. It's soul crushing. Um. And then we uh, decided to do a general TV podcast called Satellite Dish. And that was pretty good, uh, except it made it so that we had to watch 
more TV than we wanted mm-hmm. to keep up with like the demand of having a TV podcast. Yeah, we got we and we just got too busy. And so we started to think doing a podcast is fun, but how can we kind of capitalize on what what I was doing with the majority of my time, which was acting, you know, as a physician, being a doctor. And so she's a real physician. She wasn't acting yeah, not like acting. not in like catch <laughs> not like not a catch me if you can situation. <laughs> So I had always been interested in in medical history. It was something that I, for fun, if that is fun, would would read about in my spare time. And so we started talking about how some of these stories are pretty funny and kind of gruesome and pretty wild. And maybe other people would like to hear them. And then Sawbones was born. Sydney, why do you think you were interested in medical history, even as a doctor? I'm sure many of your colleagues are glad to know the latest and greatest and not worry about Pliny the Elder. (laughs) Part of it is some of the conclusions we've come to and the ways that we manage things. It's just fascinating to think about how did we figure that out? How did we get here? How did we come up with that? And that was part of why I wanted to know. And then the other thing about medicine is that so much stuff has eponyms. You, You learn about you know, various signs that are named for different doctors or places or patients or whatever. And I was always curious as to who was that and what did they do and why did they get that named after them? And how do I get that? And (laughs) it was also a way uh, for us to avoid giving advice, which can get uh, legally uh, a little dicey and just morally and ethically like challenging. So talking about what people used to do helps us to skirt that. (laughs) <laughs> I like that you're controlling liability with this podcast. That was the fir- that was the original title, but we just <laughs> couldn't fit it on the thumbnail. So, can you take me kind of briefly, Sydney, through the basic history of what people, and particularly in uh, what used to be called the West, knew about how the body worked up until? the 20th century. Like, when did we figure out that hearts are important or that brains are for thinking? (laughs) Uh, So we'll just sum up the past 245 (laughs) episodes of our podcast (laughs) in a breezy two-minute summary, no problem at all. Sydney, go. I'm just looking for a few basic signposts I can build the rest (laughs) of this around, okay? Um, A lot of the, the first challenge is anatomy. I mean, that that was that was the basic first challenge was what's inside the human body. And can we take a look and figure that out? And it really wasn't until um, dissection started becoming culturally and, and socially acceptable. And that was uh, during the medieval period, actually, when we started to see more dissections and we got a better understanding of anatomy. Up until then, a lot of it had been derived from a couple people who had done dissections here and there and written about it. And then a lot of Um, animal dissections. And so we had a lot of weird ideas about what was going on in there. So that was probably the first turning point was when we could actually start doing dissections. And then we knew what the pieces were. Um, It a lot of it from there forward until we get to gosh, the 1800s, the humoral system of medicine was still popular up until then. The idea that we have four humors and we've got to balance them. Um, we were still debating, did veins and arteries carry blood or air or um, 
we had weird ideas like maybe our bones are made of semen. Uh, <laughs> all of these things until <laughs> jury is still out on that one, by the way. Science is going back and forth still. Really, it's not until the 1800s that we start to get a firmer idea of what each organ does and where different processes take place. Um, and then medical science really explodes at the turn of the century there. And throughout the 1900s, I mean, it's just advance after advance and the germ theory of disease. And then we understand, you know, how how we can infect each other with various illnesses and uh, then vaccines and antibiotics come along and and everything changes throughout the first half, really, of the 1900s. Well, and, and also I think you have a, a huge shift in the idea of like what science can do, because we didn't understand any of these things before we started applying treatments. So like even back before we would understand why something would work or something wouldn't work. Uh, it was just about, well, I don't know, let's try it and let's record the phenomena and see what happens and see what the effect of this thing is. And that is our role. It is not to understand why things are working. It is just to mm -hmm. catalog what does and does not work. So we're trying treatments a long, 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 long time before we ever have the understanding to create a reasonable hypothesis for why these things work. And to differentiate between correlation and causation was a big deal. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of, well, your hiccups stopped after you walked through a crossroads so walking through a crossroads must stop hiccups hiccups is actually i think the best number one bet like if you want to understand medical history i'm obsessed with the idea of hiccups because <laughs> hiccups and i think warts are the two mm -hmm. where i would put it like throughout all of human history we have had hiccups and then stopped having them at a certain point after that. <laughs> and whatever you did right before that moment was the cure for hiccups. Yes. That's why there's no consent. Like you hear a hundred different cures for hiccups and it's all because we just believed, well, whatever we did right before they stopped, that's the cure. That's mm -hmm. what did it. That works. Sydney, you both teach medicine and are a family doctor. Mm -hmm. um, has thinking about these things affected the way that you practice? I think for sure. I'm I'm a lot more in tune with the fact that even though we have come very far and we know a lot more than we used to, uh, even 50 years ago, there's still a lot we have to learn. Uh, there is still a reason to take every new advance and look at it and analyze the data and figure out why we're making these decisions and then take all that and still try to advise. There is still some individual treatment for each patient. There's still a way to take all that evidence and then use the part of it that is most appropriate for each person for their health and for their benefit. And uh, I think I've really I've I've really come to understand that better from from studying this. Um, and I feel a lot luckier <laughs> to be practicing medicine now than I would 100 years ago. I mean, I think about that all the time. I have a chronic health condition. I have severe migraine headaches. And I think of the fact that, you know, human beings have been on the earth for so long, like so long. And my health condition doesn't threaten to kill me, but it sure makes my life miserable. And I think what an incredible difference just the past 25 years, even since mm -hmm. in my memory is over the 25 years before that, when my mother suffered from migraines, to say nothing of 75 years ago when my grandmother suffered from migraines or 100 years ago when some guy in Dusseldorf just, you know, 
would try to self-trepanate uh, so he could <laughs> let the demons out or whatever. Uh-huh. No, it, it's very true. I, I think um, I've become, I hope, a better advocate for uh, like vaccination, as an example, because of this. When I'm talking to my patients, uh, people who are nervous about it, I think having the historical perspective and saying, listen, I know I know how hard it is to see your kid get a shot, but let me just walk you through why and how and what it was like before. Um, having that perspective of what it was like 25, 50, 75, 100 years ago and the dangers that were out there for kids, I I think it, I hope it helps me be a better advocate. It's also been one of the frustrating things about making Sawbones in the past couple of years is that what started out as a show that was supposed to be about medical history and, hey, hooray for us, aren't we smart? We solved all these things. Uh, far too frequently, I think our show has ha recently has had to become like, hey, this is still true. <laughs> These things are still made up. Like there is still such a thing as right and wrong and true and false. And some people still would love to steal your money to uh, pretend to make you feel better um, or just get asbestos back out there. <laughs> get its moment to shine again. <laughs> nope. Still bad. It's still actually very bad for you. Is actually one of the things that that uh, is still very true. So that kind of stuff has got it, it has like inadvertently made Sawbones more political just because, like, <laughs> talking about how science is an actual thing is, has become annoying. Become a political uh, act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sydney, it must be interesting for you to be constantly engaged with the failures of your mm -hmm. profession. Oh, that's that's definitely true. I mean, it's a it's a good way to stay humble, um, which I think is absolutely critical in the medical profession. Um, the the human body and medical science and and how much we don't know. It's it, it should be incredibly humbling. And I think if you come at taking care of people from that perspective, then you will do your best job and know your limitations. Um, I think it's really important as a physician to be able to say, I don't know, and and just honestly tell a patient that. And that's very hard. That's an incredibly difficult thing when you're in the room and somebody's looking to you for answers and you don't have an answer because either we don't know yet or that's something I'm going to have to read about that because that's not something I come across every day. And so I need to do more research. Oh, man, it's hard to say. I don't know. And I think knowing that a lot of people before me have either had to say I don't know or didn't and uh, you know, they paid the paid the price for that. I, I think it's good. I think I think it's hard also because I think it, to hear you talk about it said it is hard to say. I don't know. But also the Internet does not also know. So please don't go ask the Internet because the Internet does not know better. And I think that's the assumption is the doc. There's there's this uh, presupposition people make on the Internet all the time about medicine or doctors that doctors are trying to keep the good stuff <laughs> from people so like uh, an admission of ignorance from a doctor can can like the internet can rush in to fill that vacuum and i think that could be really dangerous it is and that's that's actually one of the things that i have said and i've heard my colleagues say a lot is that i wish i had the kind of self-assuredness or, or confidence that some of the people who are out there peddling fake cures and fake medicine have because if you if you 
watch like people on the internet doing like nutritional response testing, um, they are so certain. And that is a certainty that a lot of the time I just can't have because I, I, I think this is right. I have the evidence. This should be this should work for you. But everybody's different and everything is every day is different. And so let's try it and then come back and let's see how it goes. Somebody with that kind of certainty always makes me a little wary. <laughs> we'll wrap up my conversation with Sydney and Justin McElroy when we return from a break. Still to come, imagine if we could get one of those old-timey doctors into a time machine and transport them to today. How would they react to modern medicine? The Sawbones team, that's a pretty good guess. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I started listening to Ono, Ross, and Carrie shortly after I broke my arm. I was allergic to water. I knew it was time to make a change. There's something about Ono, Ross, and Carrie that you just can't get anywhere else. They're thought leaders, discoverers, founders, healers, luminaries. Ross and Carrie don't just report on French science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. They take part themselves. They show up so you don't have to but you might find that you want to. My arm is better. My landlord came back from the dead. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Thank, Thank you, Ross, Ross and Carrie. Ona Ross and Carrie is just a podcast. It doesn't do anything. It's just sounds you listen to in your ears. All these people are made up. Goodbye. Here at Planet Money Industries, we've manufactured T-shirts. We've bought oil. We've even gone to space. But our next Planet Money series, well, let's just say a superhero is born. Coming to a podcast feed near you from NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests, Justin McElroy and Dr. Sydney McElroy, co-host the podcast Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. When we talked in 2018, they just published a book based on their podcast. It's called The Sawbones Book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine. Sydney and Justin have just released an updated paperback edition of the book, which you can buy now. Let's get back into our conversation. Who's your favorite snake oil salesperson of all time? I mean, for me, it's got to be Pliny the Elder. I know you're going to say otherwise, oh, yeah. Justin, but I, he was so earnest and so creative in his <laughs> wrong cures Uh, there's it's never as easy as take this herb um it's always like take this herb and then get some pigeon eggs and you know insert it in there carefully and then put it in a bucket of urine and dump some wine in and leave it out in the sun for three days and then take it and bury it in the ground and after a week you can have your cousin who has red hair spit in it and then eat it and you'll be you know, you won't be dizzy anymore or something like that. And it, it's just amazing. This stuff, it's so creative. Uh, mine is Curtis House Springer, a uh, a cat that uh, bought a bunch of land in the Mojave Desert uh, and renamed it Zizix. Uh, Z- <laughs> so it would be, it's Z-Z-Y-Z-X, named such so that it would be the last word in health was the gimmick <laughs> there. And he had a radio, he had a, uh, health spas that were really just um, hot pools <laughs> in the desert. And he started, uh, he and had a radio state. Like, to be clear, when you say hot pools, we're not talking about natural hot springs even. No. We're no. just talking about, no. he no. filed a mining claim. 
Yes. Yeah. To get a, some land and then put in a water boiler. Yeah. And it's a, uh, uh, he had a 60 room hotel, a church, and there was a, a, a spa that was shaped like a cross. And he had his own, um, radio station that just played like religious music and ads for his medicines constantly. So he, um, he was known as the king of quacks, right? King of quacks. Curtis Housebringer is a good one. Sydney. As a woman, as you study the history of medicine, are you struck by structural inequities between men and women and people of other genders? Definitely. The One of the earliest episodes that we did uh, was on hysteria, which is, of course, not an actual disease. It's not an actual disorder. It was kind of a catch-all term for a woman not acting the way we would like her to. Um, And there may have actually been medical problems that underlied some of these symptoms and some of these behaviors. In other cases, it could have just been a woman who didn't want to conform to the societal standards of the time period. Um, And there were obviously all kinds of horrible treatments and and, um, women were institutionalized for having hysteria. And that concept is, of course, outdated today. Nobody's diagnosed with that now. But you see echoes of that even in medicine today. It's no surprise that if you are not male, your pain will not be perceived as great by your by your medical professional will uh, under undervalue your your thoughts about what might be going on and um, not take you as seriously and under treat you. And we've seen that with um, things like I think endometriosis has been in the in the media spotlight a lot lately, where a lot of the times if it has to do with the pelvis uh, and you're not a male and you come in with a complaint, you're kind of just turned away and said, like, well, I don't know, take some ibuprofen, you'll be fine. And, and the same thing, I think uh, childbirth, you could make a lot of arguments for the way that we medicalized childbirth and kind of took it away from the people giving birth and said, you can't handle this. We'll do it all for you. Just lay there and let us take care of it. There are echoes of that now. It's not as bad, certainly. Uh, and I think with more female doctors, that has that has helped. But uh, we still have a way to go. When my wife was pregnant, um, you know, you go through the lists of things that you, uh, medical treatments that you can and can't have when one is pregnant. And many of them are prohibited basically because they haven't been studied in the population of pregnant women. Mm -hmm. I, I recently learned, oh, like studies have historically gone to great lengths to exclude pregnant women, including sometimes just excluding women because they could become pregnant just because it's complicated, (laughs) just because it would would make things complicated and it leaves pregnant women without access to uh, many therapies that could be safe if they had been studied and determined to be safe. That's very true. It's it's also a great example of how the behavior of a pregnant person is so tightly regulated in part because we don't know how harmful different things are or what is harmful in some cases. And so we would just rather tell somebody, look, it's not about you. It's about the baby. So just don't do any of these things and don't take any of these medicines. 
and don't go to any of these places. And it's not about you. It's your quality of life has to be sacrificed at this moment because there's another person that we care more about. And that's very much the message instead of, hey, how about we take care of both of you? How about we make sure that we're giving you the best information so you can have a good quality of life as well as the new life that's growing inside you? Uh, we don't we don't really take that into consideration. Yeah. But flip side, if a researcher <laughs> comes up to you and they're like, hey, want to roll the bones on your baby to help us see if NyQuil works? Like you're probably not. No, I think I'm OK. Well, I, I think that if you're talking about NyQuil, that's a really bad example. Well, NyQuil is a patent medicine. Yes, I understand this. But like the but if you're talking, <laughs> it is hard to find will like it is hard to find pregnant people who who are willing to risk take the risk that is associated with like that sort of research. Right? Unless they have certain medical conditions where maybe they, they would really like to see if they have other therapeutic options. What you might be talking about is the legal risk for the doctors involved and the trouble it would take to design a study like that. And it's just harder. It's harder to get IRB approval and you just decide, eh, I don't want to mess with all that. Uh, Sydney, how do you think one of these old timey doctors would feel about the way medicine is practiced today? If we could get Pliny the Elder over like helicopters and tall buildings, if he, if he was chill about that stuff, how mm -hmm. would he react to the modern practice of medicine? I think I think the biggest, well, for plenty, I think he would think we were underutilizing lots of elements of nature in our treatments. Like, where are all the feces that you're not using as medicine? And yeah. why, where, why are, do, where do foxes figure in this plan? <laughs> why aren't you using wolf's hearts for anything? Um, but I think other than that, uh, we now we can touch patients. I think that's a big difference. If you go all the way back to ancient times, they weren't they weren't examining a lot of people. They were just kind of looking at you, maybe looking at your pee, but not really touching you. I think that would that would be a little disturbing. But I think that um tasting your pee a little. Mm-hmm. Just tasting a little tasting your pee somewhat. Just to see if it was sweet. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest difference I think the biggest thing they would say is why I don't think the switch from individualized treatment plans to more like disease-based treatment plans, I think that would be very dissonant to an old-timey ancient physician. I think that would be very hard for them to to understand why we would treat two people who maybe look completely different, completely different ages or sizes or genders or whatever, why we would treat them with the same medicine. I think that would be very, very confusing and disorienting to see that shift. And then I think that the whole, you know, the Hippocratic Oath says that we would not uh, charge students for teaching them. That's part of the Hippocratic Oath. And I think that if you kind of take that and expand it to the way that medicine is a business now, and it's not, it's not individualized, it's not private, it's not an art, it's not a human not a humanistic thing it's it's like a business in this country i think that would be very disturbing to ancient physicians um who took what they did to be a this very profound undertaking of you know human behavior to help each other to cure each other to treat each other to to provide care i think the way that medicine has become this something that you can buy and sell i think that would be very upsetting that's my guess plus probably like some stuff about the volume of the two different colors of bile 
Well, that too. <laughs> well, I mean, are we assuming we already told him about like TVs and electricity and everything? Because it's going to be a rough week regardless. <laughs> the, the electronic medical record alone is just, sure. that's the end of it. <laughs> well, uh, Justin McElroy, Dr. Sidney McElroy, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It's nice to get to talk to you guys. Uh, it's been too long. Yeah, likewise. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Please buy our book. Justin and Dr. Sidney McElroy from 2018. Their podcast, Sawbones, drops weekly, which, given the fact that Sidney is both a parent and a working physician in the midst of a pandemic, is pretty extraordinary. Listen and subscribe to Sawbones for helpful news you can use about our world health situation right now and something to take your mind off all that from medical history. The Sawbones book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine, is beautiful and delightful. Its definitive edition with expanded material is out right now in paperback. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I'm not afraid to say that I have a grape nut stash. I don't know if you guys know about the grape nuts shortage, but it is real. Uh, And particularly in a pandemic, you don't want to have to make a special trip to get your grape nuts. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. You can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.